0: Welcome to Shovel Talk, a podcast for economic developers, from your friends at the Golden Shovel Agency.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Bethany Quinn, and I am the Vice President of Strategy and Content Development for Golden
2: Shovel. And I'm Amanda Jenkins, Gatekeeper Client Manager for Golden Shovel.
1: And we want to welcome you to our podcast series called Shovel Talk. On this series, we are profiling the economic developers that make our communities incredible places to live. These are very passionate people, but it's hard to see what really goes on behind the scenes in the economic development world. On our podcast, we're gonna be profiling them to understand who they are, where they come from, and why they are motivated to make their communities a better place.
2: Today on Shovel Talk, we'll be interviewing Horton Hobbs from the Springfield Chamber. Join us as we explore his interesting childhood, find out how meteor showers paved the way for this economic developer, and stick around for the end because you'll want to hear all about the Horton Hobbs family band.
1: We are here with Horton Hobbs. Horton is the Vice President of Economic Development at the Greater Springfield Chamber of Commerce in Springfield, Ohio. Horton, would you like to say hello?
0: Hello, how are you?
1: Thank you so much for joining Amanda and I today. My pleasure. We would like to know a little more about Horton Hobbs, starting with, where are you from? Where did you grow up?
0: Well, I'm from Springfield, Ohio. That's where I grew up. I can't say I was born here. I was actually born in Newport News, Virginia, but moved here when I was six months old because of Wittenberg University. And I've been here my whole life, even went to, uh, obviously, grade school, middle school, high school left for a little bit to go to college up in Michigan but then came back to Wittenberg and so I even went to college here in Springfield as well. And then I uh, got my graduate degree at Miami University and then promptly moved right back home uh, to, to Springfield.
2: Awesome and tell me a little bit about your family background and your experience being able to see kind of behind the scenes at the Smithsonian.
0: Oh wow yeah I don't talk about this a whole lot because um, I just don't it's not normally who I am but yeah, I had a very cool uh, childhood. My grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, uh, was the curator of the Smithsonian, so curator of zoology at the Smithsonian. So um, his focus was in crayfish, so invertebrate zoology. He and my father have have introduced or named uh, the vast majority of crayfish species, certainly in, in North America, but have not actually probably much of the world, frankly. And so it was very cool. As a kid, I would go uh, to, to Falls Church, Virginia, where they lived, about an hour outside of D.C. And my dad would spend much of the summers doing research with my, my grandfather. And I would spend time, when I wasn't at their home, I would go in with, with dad and uh, hang out at the Smithsonian. I remember one time as a kid, Getting a behind-the-scenes look at uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, display that they were putting out, and I got a chance actually—I don't know if I'm allowed to say this you know, publicly or not—but actually got to touch the Hope Diamond. It was really, really cool when wow, they had cool. it out Yeah, it was very awesome. Just a neat perspective, and I got a chance to go back there a couple of years ago uh, on an economic development trip actually, and I, I think I had my uh, my gut punched a little bit. So I got to stay actually talk. Uh, to a group of people that were uh, in the same wing my grandfather's office was and they've sensed His office doesn't exist anymore. There was a picture There is a picture of him in one of the rooms, but nobody there remembered him. That's how long ago. So
2: That's awesome. That must have been a real nostalgic trip for you. It was awesome. So when you were a
1: kid, um, you were obviously surrounded by scientists Mm-hmm. Were you a science guy as a kid or were you out there playing with superheroes and, and getting
2: <laughs> dirty?
0: Yeah, I was uh, getting dirty. I We lived, uh, my parents, we lived in a, a cul-de-sac uh, in Springfield and in the back of the cul-de-sac was a, a, a set of woods. So I grew up, you know, really in the height of the 80s and, you know, Star Wars was my favorite thing as a kid and I remember when uh, Return of the Jedi came out and you know, the Ewoks and all the land speeders and all that stuff in the forest, we would play Star Wars in the woods behind our house. And I mean, my buddies lived, who lived a couple of streets down, it was the same woods and it was connected from my house to theirs. And so, I mean, we had, we had villages and, you know, our own make-believe right. stuff and yeah, it was cool. But I was also a science guy too. So, you know, I would travel a lot with my dad in the summers because that's when he did his research, my mom and my sister would stay back home because she was in sports. And um, I was just seven years younger than her. So I wasn't quite there yet. And uh, so I got to do the science thing. But man, I I I can't even, I tell my kids a lot. I, I I don't even know how they are growing up the way they are. I didn't, we didn't have phones or anything like that. We we got dirty, banged our faces against trees and everything else. And that's fun, <laughs>
2: fun
0: doing it. I can't imagine what it would have been like with cell phones
2: so tell us about your um your favorite research trip that you took with your dad as a kid
0: oh my gosh it was probably a little bit less research and more uh for me anyway I'm, I'm sure there was research that was done so we a lot of the work we did he did uh i remember us going out west a lot and so we actually spent two two trips where we went to the grand canyon and that's not the purpose of the trip but we were in that vicinity but that same trip two two really cool things happened I think this is why I love kind of Mid-America, I'm on the board of Mid-America, EDC, and certainly where I've met a lot of the Golden Shovel folks. And what I love about it is I have some shared experiences. So we were in the Badlands, uh, my dad and I, and I'll never forget it. I can't remember the, how old I was. I do forget that, but I was, a, I was still a young kid, probably seven or eight years old. And I remember we got out there and it was a late, late afternoon and we went to the ranger station and and dad wanted to do an overnight uh permit so we were going to go out to a to to an area and just spend the night out in the badlands and then the next morning get up and you know trek around and then come back to the car and i'll never forget the the ranger um i was this starry-eyed little kid looking up at my dad watching him like talk to the ranger i thought he was the coolest thing and i thought the ranger was cool too and my dad's like, yeah, we like a day, you know, an evening pass. And he said, you're not gonna believe it. You could, did you plan tonight? And dad's like, well, well I mean, yeah, we planned to come here. No, but you know what tonight is. And and I remember my dad saying, well, no, I don't. And he goes, well, tonight's the night of a and meteor shower. And I'm like, and I, I'm like, oh. I'm tugging on pop. I'm like, what the heck is a Perseid? He's, I'll tell you in a minute. So nonetheless, we end up getting our um, our packs on and we walk out and we go out onto this butte. And uh, we built this Karen kind of out in the middle of where we were staying. And, and it was starting to get dusk. And you could actually, honest to goodness, hear the coyotes kind of in the background. And I said, Pop, what is, what is a P- P- Persean meteor shower? He said, well, it's a meteor shower that happens once a year, I think I think is what he said, but once a year. And um, actually where we are, there's no light pollution, so we should be able to see it. And I, I honestly, I'll never forget, just it was nonce. We didn't sleep that night. The entire night we laid, we put our our um, uh, packs down and we laid on top of them. You have to be careful because you have scorpions and that kind of stuff. But we we laid out on top of them, and all night long we heard coyotes in the in the distance, and we watched uh, meteor shower all night long. Uh, and then we left there and we headed south, and we ended up at the Grand Canyon and went hiking at the Grand Canyon. So it was a very memorable trip.
1: That sounds spectacular. I don't think very it's many awesome. people would forget that. That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: It was awesome. I'm yeah, very lucky to have had parents that were very engaged in my life and certainly gave me great opportunities, certainly.
1: Well, it's interesting because you did have so much fun with them as a child, yet you obviously decided to go in a very different career path. So, you know, what was that moment when you were younger, you know, looking at your career options that made you decide economic development?
0: Well, that's great. I don't think anybody ever goes into economic development or ever knows that that's what they're going into for sure. I was a, I was actually a sophomore at Wittenberg University uh, and it was second semester. I had just come back um, after my first year up in Alma College in Michigan and I came back to be a biology professor with my dad because I wanted to study with my with my father under my dad, do research with him like he had done with his dad and that prior academic year, my grandfather, the one I mentioned before, had passed away. And that was the moment when I realized, wow, I got to be a scientist. I really got to do this. And I decided uh, to go all in. Well, then um, I was doing great. And then there was this class called organic chemistry. I think uh, if anybody on here has a science background at all, they'll know exactly what organic chemistry is. For some, that's kind of the weed out class. Well, for me, the intention wasn't for not for it to be a weed out but it was certainly at the time i tried i had a i had a uh, tutor i was struggling and i decided i didn't want to mess up my gpa that i had already screwed up the first semester of college any worse so i decided to withdraw from the class and with the intent to come back the next uh, the next school year my junior year and take the organic chemistry class and so i de-enrolled and ended up picking up this just general uh, geography class and the professor's name was Leonard Brown and he looked like Santa Claus. And I'll never forget watching him. He was mesmerizing. I don't even really, you know, really remember all the content of the class other than this guy had such a passion for uh, people the, for him, it was the people of Honduras where he would spend his uh, summers, he and his wife uh, helping build villages. Who knew? And I just kind of got mesmerized with geography and then I took another class and I actually was taking a, a dual path to be a bio major and a, and a geography major together and ended up taking a class in GIS, geographic information system, which today is ubiquitous in any, in every field. But then at that time, it was not in the mainstream. In fact, Wittenberg University, I was in a class where um, Ohio State University is about 45 minutes away and my major professor Uh, was a uh, a geography professor there. Her husband was a professor there, and he got the very first commercial license or, or education license for GIS to be used at Ohio State University. Nobody else had that. And because his wife was my professor, she got it. So actually was in the first set of classes to ever use GIS technology. And I thought that's what I would do the rest of my life. And I did, I remember having the conversation with my dad and I said, Pop, you know, I'm going to finish this, this uh, biology thing, but I don't think that's what I want to do for a living. And he said to me, you know what, all I've ever wanted and all your mother has ever wanted is for you to do something that makes you happy and something you're passionate about. If it's biology, great. If it's geography, great, but whatever it is, give it everything you got and we'll fully support you. And that's, that's kind of how it happened. There are a lot of nuances around that certainly, but, um, that was kind of the moment for me. And, you know, I tell that story a lot and, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I had that experience. It's a great thing about a liberal arts school—you can get away with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. It exposes you to so many different paths. It's pretty cool that you saw that technology as it first emerged, and you've successfully used that to attract businesses and create jobs for your community. Bringing that yeah. full circle is awesome.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, there was a there was a time there where I never thought I'd get back to using it again, and now I'm using it again. But you know, the sad thing is, had I stayed in that field, which a couple of my my classmates did. I'd have retired about 10 years ago, literally. At 35, I probably would have retired because we would have been on the cutting edge of that technology. But hey, you know what? Uh, I'm happier for, uh, for where, where life has taken me, so we're, we're, all, we're all good.
2: <laughs> sure. So tell us um, a little bit about where your career path has taken you. How did you end up uh, at Springfield Chamber?
0: That's interesting. So I ended up uh, going to grad school right out of of college. And while I was at Wittenberg, I interned with our city of Springfield, uh, which is our main city here. And I knew in that internship experience in the planning department that I either wanted to become a city planner or city manager. Um, Didn't even know really what economic development was certainly at that point in time. And so I ended up going to Miami University, got my graduate degree in geography, but you have to specialize in something. And I was in urban and regional land use planning. My first job um, while I was still finishing my master's degree was a, a firm called the Miami Valley Regional Planning Commission in, in downtown Dayton, Ohio. It's a transportation planning firm, if you will. It's a public it's a public entity and does transportation planning for three counties, but but at that time land use planning for five counties total and so i was doing land use planning and i was in the most rural parts of our region literally meeting with um uh, farmers on in their uh, literally on the back of their tractors at seven eight o'clock at night because it was the only time you could talk to them about planning or land use in their townships and those kinds of things and i really got a bug for it but but I always knew that I wanted to get back to Springfield, back to Clark County. We were living there, but I was working in Dayton. And I've been very lucky in my life not to have been let go, knock on wood, uh, let go, or uh, having to look for another job. I've, I've, opportunities have presented themselves, and I've been very fortunate to, to be able to kind of pick and choose among those, and I, and I don't take that for granted. Um, but, um, while I was there, there was an opportunity with a little town in, in Clark County, the only other city in Clark County, which is called New Carlisle. And, you know, you know, if people from Clark County actually listen to this, this, uh, podcast, they'll probably cringe a little bit, but I knew what I was kind of getting into. Um, it's a small town, great community, love the the little city, but it's a tough town and growing up here, you knew it was tough. It was kind of them against the rest of the world kind of mentality and so I took that job and was there for a couple of years and really liked it. But um, while I was there, I had an opportunity to run a the, the downtown Springfield redevelopment group called, at the time, Center City Association. Here I was a uh, at that time, like a 28, 29-year-old snot-nosed kid, thought, thought I knew it all and realized I didn't know a whole lot. But I took that GIS experience and that planning experience and was at our downtown organization at the time looking back now almost, you know, 20 years ago now, literally, uh, at a time when our downtown was transforming or beginning to transform and where planning was really important. And so, um, I was there at a time when we did a, a kind of a comprehensive plan around, uh, some amenities around downtown and we had uh, two hospitals that were merging at the time and the decisions were being made of where it was going to be located outside of the city or, or staying in downtown. And. I ended up staying in downtown, it ended up staying in downtown, and it's been very, very um, important in terms of the development of not just our community, but my career. But I'll tell you, you know, there are times, and I hope there are listeners on here that reflect about their own career, and looking back, and at that time, you know, I was late 20s. Um, I had two kids, I had one and one on the way, and I would go out to dinner with my wife or with family, and I couldn't just have a meal with by ourselves. People would come up and say, "What's going on downtown?" or "Why is that happening?" I don't like what you're doing. You know, it was those kinds of things. And I was I was a little over my skis, quite honestly. And I didn't know it then, but I but I knew I was uncomfortable. I felt very was beginning to be pushed and challenged in a way that I just didn't didn't like, frankly. Now I relish it, but back then I didn't like it. And so um, I was working closely with our community foundation at the time. And I knew the executive director fairly well. They had funded some of the work we were doing at center city. And again, she, she kind of comes up to me and uh, asks me to go to lunch and I go to lunch. And while at lunch, uh, the executive director now, but then was the the CFO hands me an envelope, slides it across the table and says, we would like for you to consider a position at the foundation. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, what is it? Well, it's a, it's, it's our director director of development. And I'm, and I'm thinking, wow, development, economic development, that's kind of cool. Foundation, that's even cooler. This is a true story. So I te- so I, I waited a couple of, uh, about a week, and I finally, they called and they said, well, have you given any thought to it? And I said, well, well, I'll, I'll at least go through the interview. This is a fact. I, I actually was so naive and wanted so much to kind of get out of my own situation that the interview went well, and I ended up. Um, kind of understanding what the role of the of the the job would be, but I had no idea that when they said development, it meant fundraising. And so, director of development was fundraising, not economic development. And and I honestly thought that I was going to be able to do economic development and leverage it leverage the funding of the of the organization to do it. <laughs> Needless to say, that was a little uh, uncomfortable for the next uh, year or so, but. But I ended up staying there six years and loved every minute of the the last five of those years (laughs) Um, and, and frankly developed friendships and, and uh, relationships with people who honestly all they cared about was giving away their money, frankly, to make our community better. And it was so awesome. Unbelievable. And so I probably would be there the rest of my life or and, 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 and it was kind of a, a dilemma for me because I didn't want to lose my, I felt like I had given up on my education. I felt like I'd thrown away my master's degree. I'd thrown away all this other stuff. But what I also realized was, gosh, it's okay because if you love what you're doing, it really doesn't matter the path you take to get there. Uh, life is too darn short and, and you gotta, you gotta, you got to just do what makes you feel good. And I was standing in line at Rotary. Um, back in, uh, 2011, probably October, end of September, 2011. And I'm standing in the buffet line, which is, you think about those today in COVID probably never have buffet lines again, but I was standing in the buffet line and one of my former board members, who's my boss now, Mike McDormand was standing there. He's like, Hey, Horton, how are you? I'm like, "Yeah, I'm great. He goes, Hey, I want to talk to you about something. Um, can you come over to my office this afternoon? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, here I am happy go lucky. And, You know, I knew that his guy, his economic development guy, who had done incredible work here at the chamber for the the three or four years he was there, uh, was moving on, and Mike was looking for somebody, but it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't really interested in getting back in the game. I remember Mike talking to me about five years prior to that, so like 2008 timeframe, he had reached out to me about kind of, if they brought downtown development under the auspices of our chamber, would I be interested in coming over? And I kind of thought, yeah, maybe, but who knows? So anyway, I go to, after lunch, I, I end up going to his office and for the next two hours we talk and he basically offers me this job, the job that I have now. And he would tell you if he was sitting uh, on this call with us, he had to call me. And if you guys, uh, um, Mike is not a guy who waits three weeks for anybody to do anything. He's on, your, he's on you right now. Well, he gave me three weeks and he called me and goes, hey, have you, have you decided? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, the position. I said, are you really serious about that? <laughs> And so um, over the course of the next couple of days, we we ironed it out and I ended up leaving the foundation to a huge celebration by the board and the staff and a lot of community people to come over and do this work at the chamber. And I've now coming up this January we will have been here nine years. It's very hard to believe. And, and again, the first two years, I had no clue what economic development was. It wasn't the same economic development I had done in downtown work for sure. But I'll tell you, about, tell you what, looking back, my life has changed uh, so positively because of this experience. I mean, the people that I've gotten to meet across the world, um, certainly um, folks like you at Golden Shovel and GIS Planning and so many others that have really uh, profoundly impacted and changed the way we do business here in our community uh, has been spectacular. But more than that, uh, the family I work with, and I mean it, family that I work with, um, I'm blessed to get up every day and and not go to a job, but to do something that I love in a place that's my home. I hope sincerely that those listening, uh, whatever it is that they pursue and, or end up pursuing, they do it with the same kind of passion that I've been so thankful to have been able to pour into this job. And, and again, it's not a job, it's a calling, it's a passion. And hey, by the way, you know, the biology stuff, that's pretty relevant in economic development. The fundraising stuff, yeah, that works out pretty well too when you're trying to fund your organization. And mm-hmm. uh, it just goes to show that life takes you on all kinds of paths, as we all know in this particular year but don't get pigeonholed into the path you're you're on and don't look negatively toward it because you just never know where it's going to take you. And um, boy, had I stopped because it didn't, it wasn't painting out the way I thought I would have missed this opportunity today that we're having right now. Obviously it's not hard to to talk about something you love.
2: That's great advice for our listeners.
1: You know, it's interesting because like you mentioned, you are very passionate about what you do and you love what you do. And I think that that's the goal that most young people have when they're looking at going into their career, Um, but really what advice could you give someone who's looking to go into economic development specifically, and I I ask that because even your own journey didn't necessarily take the most obvious of routes.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Bethany. I I think for me, it's don't, don't expect. What I see a lot of, especially young folks that are coming out of college or just entering the workforce, there's and I, and i really don't mean this as a stereotypical uh, statement but there's a lot of expectation that that things are just going to get given to you or because you have a certain role there's an expectation that you're around a table or that that you just you you've been anointed something the advice i got uh, when i was at center city so here i am 20 years ago from one of our community leaders god rest his soul mr richard alcuz he actually um, his dad, have you, you may have heard of Speedway uh, gas stations. Uh, that's located in Springfield, at least for the time being, um, that was located, that was founded here. Uh, his father-in-law was the one that founded Bonded Oil, which ended up being Emro and then later Speedway. Well, he goes on to be one of the biggest names in our community, certainly, but also uh, the most revered leader we probably ever had in our community. And we had lunch uh, several times, but I remember him saying to me, Horton, you need to go through life with your eyes wide open, and you must always seek the guidance of those who have come before you. Never expect something to be handed to you, and that if you take that approach, you will have earned your right to be a leader in this community when the time is right. But don't ever underestimate your role as a leader. Because just because you may not be seated at the head of the table, doesn't mean that your contributions aren't important to making the community better. And so you have to earn that place to be called a leader. But if you do things the right way, which he said, of course, I think you will, you'll have that opportunity. Leadership is not, it, it, you're you're born with the skills But it's not given to you. You have to earn that place by the way you treat others, and by the way you work uh, in your in in this community. And so, you know, I've tried to instill that in our younger staff. Um, I've tried to speak that into students when we talk to them in schools. Certainly, the audience is different, and you say it differently. But my biggest piece of advice, especially in economic development, is. You know, there are going to be some things you need to be an expert in, but you need to make sure that you do the job of understanding the ecosystem that you work in. Don't expect a city official or a county official, I work at a chamber, uh, or a business uh, to tell you those things. You need to do the research. You need to do the hard work to earn your place at that table. Just because you're an executive or a vice president or whatever title you have doesn't give you the right to be in the conversation. You have to earn that right. And it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your race or your gender. Uh, there are biases that go with that, certainly, and, and they're unfortunate. But all I can tell you is in my lifetime, hard work has, has compensated for my shortcomings, and I have a lot of them. And so that advice to me at a young age in my career was probably the most defining and, uh, you know, I, I have to think about it a lot, actually, and I have to draw from that a lot. Just work hard. Um, and, and, and it doesn't mean you have to work 23 of the 24 hours of the day. I have, the older I've gotten, the wiser I've become in terms of my, my work, I work a far less uh, harder, but a lot more smarter. So don't, the, I guess the last piece of advice is don't push yourself. Don't, don't beat yourself up for being young and starting out a career and not knowing everything. That's okay. Um, that's where you have to rely on mentors and find people, seek them out, seek people out in this profession. This is the best profession I've ever been in, in terms of collegiality and, and work. Heck, I, I've accomplished some good things in my career, but I'm most proud of the relationships that I've built. And and I'm offering today to anybody that ever just needs somebody to talk to or needs some, some, somebody's sage opinion about something, I'm happy to be there for them. Because it took that for me in this career to, to get me to where,
1: where I am. That's, that's the advice I could give. That's
2: awesome. Thank you. On behalf of any
1: student or young economic developer that's listening.
2: Definitely. And, and anyone out there who uh, has somebody that might benefit from this advice, looking into economic development, please share our podcast with them. That, that is amazing advice. Thank you. So tell us what surprises you most about your community. If someone was going to either visit your community or even move there, uh, what would they be most surprised about um, as they get to to know your community? It's probably
0: at a lot of different levels. I think if somebody were to come here for the first time not knowing anything about our community, they would just be blown away with the amenities that we have for a town our size. And the fact that we're between Dayton and Columbus, we're perfectly suited, and this is not in a pitch, but we are just perfectly suited to have the kind of that very small town feel. It's a great place to raise a family, but but yet you can get away and get to those bigger markets really, really easily. So um, I think those are, the, those are kind of the hidden gems. The other thing is, people would be surprised at the history of our community and the role it played, frankly, in, in the development of uh, of our country, in terms of you know, one of the uh, patents for the Wright brothers was you know was uh, let right downtown, right by right by our office, as a matter of fact. So some of the patents for the first powered flight came right from Springfield, and um, the national road stopped in our community for ten, almost fifteen years, actually, when the federal government ran out of money. So everybody going west to reach prosperity stopped in Springfield, Ohio. And that's why we started uh, the way we were. And then at one point in time, turn of the century, uh, we were the second largest industrial city in the world behind Nuremberg, Germany. And that was unfortunately because of the Chicago uh, fire, that was the manufacturing prowess that this community had um, back in the day. And so I think as a community, we probably rested on those laurels a little too much, a little too long, but we've seen our way through that.
1: We obviously do want to touch a little bit on the Springfield Chamber itself and what your focus is today. As we're talking to you, we are still dealing with COVID-19. I'm sure a lot of people are curious to see how an organization that does have a long-standing reputation and is very established, how you have been able to maybe pivot right now during COVID and how has that impacted your guys' focus?
0: Yeah, it's great. Great question, Bethany. It's almost, I feel like these are softballs and for those listening, I didn't know these questions were coming. So it's actually, we have really found, it's been really interesting because we are a chamber of commerce, as you mentioned, but uh, as a chamber, we have three entities. Obviously the chamber is the main entity, but we have a convention of visitors bureau, which is funded by travel and tourism. So you can imagine where the funding's gone for that, but we also have the economic development apparatus, which is the public private partnership. So we get funding from the County and our city But then we have private funding. And right before this pandemic, we were getting ready to launch a $4.1 million capital campaign to kind of fund the organization or at least the economic and workforce development for the next five years. And so you can imagine what happens in March when you're just getting started with that and, and you have a global pandemic, how one might think that would affect you negatively and you know, for whatever reason, and I can't, I, I, I'd like to tell you we were, were that good, but we're not. I think we're more lucky sometimes than we're good, and I'll take it. We were able to pivot literally on March 16th, which was the day our state kind of shut down in Ohio. Um, we pivoted to our first Zoom meeting. And we, as chambers of commerce as a whole, the whole industry is, is I think, has been facing a paradigm change for years um, do in large part because of this crazy thing we call a, a, a smartphone, um, that really changed the value proposition for many chambers because the networking and the engagement that chambers have come to, to make their, their, their hay on have been replaced by social media and LinkedIn and Facebook and, and frankly, the smartphone. So chambers have really had an identity crisis for, for years, I think that's where we found our greatest opportunity. I hate to say that um, with using a pandemic from an opportunistic perspective, but, but the reality is we used it as an opportunity to change the way we engage our, we called them members before we call them investors moving forward because we've done over 600 zoom calls with our members, our investors, if you will, our business community, uh, our, our, our our citizens, the public, uh, the the private companies, all in nine months time. And most of those were not, they were friend raising and information providing, they were not handouts. The value proposition that we have found ourselves in is the information broker of the community. And so being that neutral convener of the conversation, which we had been doing, frankly, for years, Somewhat apologetically at times because you know sometimes it felt like you were wrangling people into a meeting to, to talk about common issues, we used this platform this video platform as a way to really engage so now we're engaging uh, the C-suite of our businesses where before if we were lucky to get you know middle management or, or frontline folks at best to engage in our work now we have the C-suite engaged in meaningful ways because it's easier and' and it's, and it's more effective for them. While at the same time, we decided to put ourselves out there and really talk about this four prong approach to our strategy and the work we're doing around workforce and economic development and community building and training and amplifying the work of our partners. And we used this video format as a way to amplify that message and tell it in a different way that we have found to be very compelling and, and, and frankly during this time we've raised just a little over 4 million of the $4.1 million that we set out to, to raise last fall. So all of that has been done during a pandemic, all of it. And I have to tell you, it takes partnership to do that and it takes a real dedication by lots of partners to make that done. And I'm in this, you, this is not a plug. This is just a fact, you know, convergent nonprofit solutions. We, we challenge them to, to change their paradigm, they're they're face-to-face. Many of those fundraising groups are face-to-face only. They had never done this. And I said, we're gonna do Zoom, and we're gonna figure it out, and we're gonna make it work. Because at the end of the day, people give to people, but more important, people give to people with causes. They really don't give to our organizations. We like to think they do. Uh, but I learned that a long time ago at the foundation that people really give to people. And when I'm sitting in front of a, a, an investor or uh, a, a potential investor to our organization, I'm being held accountable to what we're doing. And so is our staff. And so is our CEO when he talks about what we're working on. There's power in that. But you know what? Golden Shovel provided incredible support to us by helping us tell our story. So we have expand2024.com website that Golden Shovel really helped us think through and put together and and launch to give us a format and a forum for us to tell our story. you got to have partners like that to get that done. And that was a call to to my friend John Marshall, and Aaron Brassois to talk about hey how do we how do we do this in a different way and they they were so embracing of a different way of doing this even though it was using using simple technology like a website but it was telling a story in a different and compelling way and so you know this this has been it's been the best time for an organization like ours because we've reinvented ourselves you know this isn't for public knowledge but hopefully not too many people from Springfield, uh, listen, at least right away, depending on when this comes out. But at the first of the year, we're going to change the whole name of our organization to better reflect who we are um, as an organization in our community, more in that partnership vein. That wouldn't have happened without the feedback we got from Zoom and and some of these real engagements that we've had over the last year. So if you're nervous about it, you don't know if you want to embrace it, um, just do it. It's the Nike term. Just do it. Um, What's the worst thing that could happen? Somebody falls asleep? on the camera, um, maybe turns off their video and ignores you. That's okay. But at least they, they tuned in.
2: That's so true. And um, thank you for for saying that, you know, people do give to people. You are so so right about that. And I know there's so many um, businesses and organizations right now that are looking at how they can humanize their, their brand and their um, their business when they can't go out and, and actually be in front of people. And so um, that's a great comment. Absolutely. I'm curious. There's so much around um, remote work right now and um, businesses, you know, and and organizations and companies looking at at remote work and and there's a lot of science out there around, um, you know, people's routines through the day and, you know, looking at how people structure their day for productivity and things like that. So, I'm very curious, kind of, what your morning routine looks like. What do you? Is there anything that you do to kind of get ready for your day? What does that look like for you? What keeps you motivated through the day?
0: <laughs> honestly, <laughs> my day hasn't changed at all anymore. We're we've been back at the office uh, really since May. Honestly, we have a small team, and so we're able to to socially distance quite a bit. So. What keeps me motivated is when I look out, out my window and I see you know, an empty building or I don't see enough foot traffic or I see a, a small business that uh, during this time has, has gone under, like a restaurant, for instance, and um, that motivates me uh, to, to get up and continue to tell the story. And, and I'll be honest with you, if we didn't have the campaign during this time, this, this, this investment campaign, I don't know what it would have been like for me because, you know, nobody wanted to see me in their business. Certainly my, my colleagues, no, nobody wanted to do that. And they were so busy, but most businesses have been so busy. They don't even really want to get on a call. And we talked about the success of zoom, but there are still limitations to it. But the campaign, honestly, for me, it galvanized our team uh it pushed our ceo to think differently uh it pushed our entire senior staff our my colleagues um you know amy and Kendra are doing great work we had to think differently about the way we're engaging and we hired Kendra during the pandemic to engage with schools think about that she can't get into the schools but but it's that's what's kept me motivated that's what's got me going because literally every day, two to three times a day for six months, four months. All I got to do was for an hour at a time, talk about all the great things that we've accomplished, but all the great momentum we're building and what the future could be if we all get in the same boat and row together. And that was incredibly invigorating, probably something I really needed in retrospect. Um, So it hasn't been real hard to get up. Uh, the, The nice thing is sometimes if you know, I'm just not feeling I can do it for my kitchen, um, but you know, or or you know, my basement or whatever. But the reality is, in this work, there's so much work to do all the time. You, if you, if, if you're looking at for looking forward for your community, it's not hard to be motivated, uh, frankly, uh, about the opportunities, especially in a difficult time.
1: So we know that you're motivated by uh, very good, you know, reasons. Obviously, for your community but you're a karaoke guy so you know when my team got tough you could just bust out the karaoke machine and for anyone at golden shovel and our other clients who have watched your videos in the past we want to know two things one where did your love of karaoke come from and what's your favorite song
0: wow okay so i will tell you my my favorite song is the dance by garth brooks good one bomb on, hands down <laughs> My very favorite, my very favorite one to perform seriously is "Keeper of the Stars." I sang that to my wife at our wedding. Kind of cheesy moment, I get it. My love for karaoke actually started when I was a little kid. Uh, my first plastic fake guitar—I cannot play the guitar at all—but God rest Eddie Van Halen. He was my hero, my idol as a kid. I had this white, this red and white uh, guitar that I put you know, tape that you you used to put on your fingers, you know, like if you had a jammed finger, whatever, it was kind of thin. I put that all over my guitar to make it look like the, the really tricked out painted looking guitar from Eddie Van Halen. And I would sing, I would sing at the top of my lungs, anything Van Halen and then jukebox hero, all those songs from the, you know, the eighties. But I didn't realize that I loved karaoke until uh, my wife and I, until I got engaged, my wife and we came became members of our local Moose Lodge, and we would go down there on uh, on Fridays and Saturdays. Uh, we may or may not have been of legal age, and we would sing. I would sing, and, and I would drag her and her family, like her aunt uh, and uncles, there. And on Friday nights, and we would just do karaoke. And then when I left to go to grad school, we lived in Oxford, um, or West college corner, Indiana, which is essentially Oxford, which is 45 minutes away from Springfield. No joke. We would drive home every Wednesday night and do karaoke at the moose lodge and then drive back that night. And, and if it wasn't karaoke, we were doing line dancing, which we don't do anymore. And so I just, I loved, I've always loved it. And then, um, when we moved into the house that we're in now, my kids are teenagers and not that I wanted to be the cool dad. I think I just wanted to channel my inner rock star. I'm like, screw this. I'm creating my own get up. So I did. I, and there are cheap ways to do this. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars, but you know, I bought the stage lighting and the fog machine and the sound system and YouTube's really great for, um, uh, you know, lyrics and that kind of stuff. And the rest is history. We just have a blast all the time in the basement and we have our own concerts. I know it's cheesy and weird, but that's just who I am. I think, I think uh, your whole team can attest to that.
1: So there's a Hobbs family band is what you're trying to say.
0: <laughs> well, there's no band, but there's, there's a, there are some singers. They're also, yeah, we're not all that great, but we have a great time. <laughs> a lot of memories.
2: Well, a lot awesome. of
0: people say for college, unfortunately, we put our money in our you know, our vacations and our home and our karaoke and that kind of stuff. My poor kids are going to have to figure it out.
2: (laughs) Maybe they can sing for tips.
0: There you go. I love it.
2: So last question for you, tell me what your wig is. What is your wildly important goal this year?
0: Well, since it's at the end of the year, uh, it's just frankly to get through the rest of the year healthy and healthy around me, you know, my, my immediate family and, and, while that's crazy to say that's a goal, I think it actually has to be a goal now to, to make sure we're doing the right things. But, you know, honestly, to enjoy this this holiday season more than I've probably ever enjoyed it, uh, to not let what typically becomes the stressors that make the holidays a crazy time become what they are, I always take them for granted. My goal this year is not to take them for granted. And and I'll tell you Why? I already put our Christmas tree up. Now it's not decorated and I already put the lights on the house and it wasn't until this morning and I turned them on yesterday, much to the dismay of my family. I thought I'm, and usually to me too, I'm like, I'm Mr. Grinch until it's Thanksgiving at least. But the reality is the weather channel had something on this morning that psychologically it's good for the brain now, uh, at least to turn on the holidays earlier this year. So my goal this year, is to truly, truly take the holidays for what they mean to me and what I think they mean to me and embrace this time because I think it's easy to take it for granted um, most years. But in a year like 2020, it's really important to think about the importance of the time we're in. So that's a goal. Never would have been a goal before, I can promise you that.
2: <laughs> now I have one follow-up question. Do you uh, do any Christmas songs for your you know, karaoke
0: I don't know. I don't I don't know. Uh, gosh, I'm sure we'll I'm sure the eggnog will flow and there'll be something that we sing. <laughs>
1: how about how about virtual karaoke with the whole golden shovel team on our yes. Christmas happy
0: hour? I would love to do that. Uh if if YouTube doesn't shut us down. Well, YouTube won't, but if it's on Zoom, we'll be okay. We could do it. But if it's Happening. on uh Yeah, it, okay, then I will be happy to uh we'll we'll arrange that and I'll be happy to uh, turn that on. And as long as it's Zoom, we won't get shut down.
1: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, it'll make our party even more fun. Yep.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I don't even have to drink to do it. That's what's interesting, right?
1: <laughs> Perfect, well, thank you so much, Horton, for your time today. We've really enjoyed learning more about Horton Hobbs, and looking behind the curtain, so to speak,
2: right?
0: Thank you so much, uh, Bethany and Amanda and Darren for the opportunity. Um, it's it's an honor to be uh, a client of Golden Shovel and I appreciate the friendship and, and thanks for the opportunity to tell my story.
2: And that concludes our inaugural episode of Shovel Talk. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Horton and you're able to take his advice to heart and find ways to implement that in your uh, professional life. Check out our website and social media to find out who we'll be interviewing on the next Shovel Talk.